you stayed with him, helping him in his grotesque work that he claims is for science. Live the incredible life of ages yet to come in a time that might be a million years from now. Rocket from Manhattan. Here of Buildings. This is Catch Up Freeland with Fear of Buildings, the podcast about science fiction stories written before 1920 that include the destruction of New York City. We are back with a discussion between Zach, Wiley, and me about our most recent story, The Man Who Was Alone, by Hugh Pendexter from 1907. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to Fear of Buildings. This is Ketchup here with uh, my, well, I'm in Austin on Skype with my brother and sister, Wiley and Zach, who are in Maine. And we are going to talk today about the Hugh Pendexter story from 1907, The Man Who Was Alone. Uh, So hi, Zach and Wiley. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Good. Great. Great. Got some allergies. Cool. (laughs) Take a third tag. Uh-huh. I already took one. I told you. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Zach, the first question that I wanted to ask about this story um, is, is the – was having it all turn out to have just been a dream already hack in 1907, or was that kind of fresh? <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it was hack, and um, – mm. I, yeah, I didn't prepare for that question, but, uh, I'm Deus Ex Hackina. I think that people would have, like, rolled their eyes yeah. at it. Um, uh, in 1889, I think it was the Mark Twain story, um, uh, confirmed. Uh, Confederate Connecticut, 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 King Arthur's Court. He, it's a guy from modern times. He goes back in time magically to King Arthur's time and and England out of Connecticut. Um, and then he wakes up and it's a dream. But like Mark Twain is already sort of circumventing it because it's like. Then it's like it wasn't a dream. Yeah, I remember there. Yeah. There's some evidence that there's it, like it a really suit of armor there. and there's a bullet hole in it in the modern what? after he wakes up, and that's like that's the twist ending. So it's like what is the 18 years before this story? I think you know Mark Twain is already um, trying. He's already working around what's probably already a little bit old hat. Okay. I, yeah, but I don't have another list of, of a bunch of other dream ending stories, but um, I think that was not the uh, innovation. Sure. Yeah. Um. And tell me a little about Hugh Pendexter. Hugh Pendexter was from Maine, and he went to Lewiston High School in the eighteen oh. hundreds. <laughs> He's from. Maine, he, he went to Lewiston High School. Uh, he lived mostly in Norway, Maine. I don't know if you've been there. No. Um, I've been there. But you know all over Maine there's a Norway Savings Bank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of near the New Hampshire border a little bit. Like okay. kind of near Conway and stuff. And it's small and it must have been very small in 1900 Mm. um he taught classics like greek and latin at a school there and then he got uh into journalism somebody else from norway uh became the editor-in-chief of the new york world which was huge newspaper in new york city and i don't know if there was a connection there as to why Pendexter then started, you know, becoming a journalist. But anyway, he went to Rochester and became a journalist there for a while. And then started writing. This story is like early in his writing career from what when I looked at his bibliography. And also, 
um, I don't know if it's because it's early in his writing career, but he didn't write like lots of science fiction or the, this could even be called like a fantasy story because mm -hmm. there's not much science involved in this story. <laughs> but there is a sort of a mystical thing going on, so it would maybe even be more like fantasy. But uh, that's not what he wrote. He wrote um, hundreds of like Western novels, uh, what novels that took place in the 1700s, 1800s, he heavily researched historical things. And then he also wrote, um, I think, uh, some humorous uh, Western stories and humorous this and that story. I've read a couple. Um, he was very popular, mostly like in the 30s. Could okay. you ever tell if he was, um, if he had gone further west than New York City? I don't know where he traveled. I know he must have visited New York City. And because his everybody, he was being all of his publishers were in New York City. And I know he lived in Rochester and Norway and he moved back to Norway after Rochester. And that's where he stayed and wrote from. But um, I don't know about his traveling. Apparently, he like really liked to just get books on the old West and research them. And that it wasn't so mm -hmm. it wasn't about going. Okay. going Dad there. says he knows something. I know something. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. About Norway. Oh, what? It's kind of like a twin city with Norway, South Paris. Okay. Uh -huh. And you know who's really famous from South Paris? Ooh. Hannibal Hamlin. Okay. Lincoln's vice president. So, I mean, this is a hotbed. Yeah. I mean, this is a little tiny place. Well, and also from either Norway or South Paris was the writer um, Sarah, what's her name? Ornette Jules. Sarah Ornette Jules. Yeah, that's I, that sounds. And she was very popular like a yeah. hundred years ago. Yeah, so it's like there was a lot of pulp and socialist <laughs> writers in Maine, right? There oh. were. There's another. Um, I don't know. A lot of them visited Maine because people from New England, um, New York, always kind of wanted to come up and visit Maine. But another another writer who's in this. Dad was mentioning Hannibal Hamlin, and then. Um, he, and so he would have been, he's a figure of the 1860s, sort of like earlier. And then this woman writer, I don't have to say woman writer, sorry. <laughs> Sarah Orange Jewel, I can, I can look up Orange her name. Julius, yes. Sarah Orange Julius. She really started a lot of fads back in her day. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, For she was, she was from one of the <laughs> two towns. Um, Sarah Orne Jewett, 1849 to 1909. Um, Jewett's a classic New England name. <clears throat> is it? I've worked for a few Jewetts, I assume. Anecdotally, it feels like a classic New England name. Um, she was from South Berwick, so mm -hmm. maybe that's in that area. But Wiley was asking that, uh, that a lot of, like, or she said a lot of pulp writers mm -hmm. lived in Maine. I don't... What I do know is that um, one of the other people who wrote a story, uh, a very good story, called The Last American, he spent a lot of time in Maine, and he wrote a a book about Mount De Desert Island, an illustrated book um, that's about people in like the late 1800s uh, vacationing. Uh, it's supposed to be funny, and there's lots of illustrations on Mount De Desert Island. And then... Uh, another one, George Allen England, who wrote the um, sort of racist uh, masterpiece three-volume thing, Darkness to Dawn. He lived in Maine. I'm forgetting what town, but also that kind of inland and up towards New Hampshire general mm -hmm. area. And uh, he lived in Maine for a long time. He ended up moving to New Hampshire, but he wrote from Maine and lived in Maine. Good riddance. Go yeah. to New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wiley also... And sorry, N.W.E.B. Du Bois vacationed in Maine a lot, too. Wiley also mentioned socialists, and this story feels, you know, I mean, at least kind of political. Did, did Was Hugh Pendexter a socialist? No. No. Not that, uh, not that I know. I um, I don't know that much more about him, and there's, uh, there's not... Um, there's not even like a long kind of profile uh, that I could find of him. 
Uh, oh. the, the only other thing I could find, like, was about that in World War One, he was, like, recruiting soldiers from Norway. There was this, like, personal interest story um, in a magazine about how Pendexter was getting, like, tons of people to sign up for the war, which is not very socialist, actually. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that he that was a you know big thing of his, and he was a little bit too old uh, for that. I think he was born in eighteen seventy. Okay, that was just because we had gone to Litchfield and some other places a few years ago to, yeah. to research visiting writers, and I thought I remembered they were socialists. Yeah, were... well, I was in Litchfield. I was looking for information about W. E. B. Du Bois's. The camp that he went to, um, he was a socialist, and then he turned into a communist um, later. Uh, and he summered someplace uh, in the nineteen teens at called, and it was called Litch Camp Litchfield or something. And I figured that would be at Litchfield, and there was a there was no information to be had in Litchfield. No, there wasn't. <laughs> they had a historical society though, but they was... did, and they don't know anything. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so as to the story, I want to talk about the thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So fascinating. I really love this story. Um, yeah. You know, the thing makes me think of Freddie Perlman's Leviathan. Um, you know, I don't know this what that sort is. of. So uh, against history, against Leviathan is this really epic uh, anarchist anti civilization really famous essay by Freddie Perlman, um, where he basically describes the embodiment of hierarchy and oppression and uh, kind of sucking people's life forces out of real life and into Mm. this machine slash octopus slash worm monster that has, you know, weapons for teeth and we all have to wear its armor and it's impossible to take it off and, you know, we're all Mm. just living in the entrails of this dead beast leviathan that will consume us all. Is this Um, a is this a, a metaphor in something nonfiction, or is this fiction? Yes, okay. it's a it's a metaphor in nonfiction. Got it. Um, and what's the time period? It's a, a speculative essay on the last five thousand years. Right, but was it written in? The oh, it's written years, in the seventies. Written... I think seventies mm-hmm. or eighties. Okay. Yeah, um, but anyway, this thing, you know, essentially giving an embodiment to uh, to this idea of of you know for him maybe it's just the city but i feel like the city can't really be uh separated from you know these ideas of of capitalism and greed and mm-hmm. social hierarchy and the, he definitely mentions the you know rich versus poor at least on some level um so i i thought it was really interesting for that, it, it felt very much like this idea of a Leviathan, which I'm very interested in. Yeah, and I think in the when he's reading the newspaper uh, headlines and articles mm-hmm. um, from like a bulletin board outside the, the newspaper offices, I think that that's what a lot of the people are theorizing. And it kind of feels also like um, uh, some of the stuff from Milan Tata that we were talking about, but where it's like, is this, you know, all of our sin and greed and all of the worst parts of our character have finally been, like, expelled, like, through our breath this long that it's created its own, you know, ephemeral force taking us over. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just squarely blaming it on, is this because us in New York are such awful people that it's, yeah. that it's created this physical embodiment of our awfulness? Um, yeah, is this, is this the, thing where... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, the thing from, like, the description, it seems like that it's, it was created through these things like greed and whatever, um, lust for power, and it says that it, well, he's, uh, when he's hypothesizing that it comes when there's lots of people together in one place, which would be a city. And then, and then it's making people disappear, like in mm-hmm. groups and stuff. He's just, they're describing that, like, 
some people disappear here, some people disappear. And then that causes a panic, apparently, and then people were fleeing the city, and that's why. So people either left of their own accord or just had disappeared. Mm -hmm. And and then the other, uh, there was one other description of the thing that I thought was really funny and, like, out of place, and I, I wonder, like, what it is about, like, psychologically, but he says, he hears footsteps, and he, flees from them and he thinks it's the thing and he says had he waited at the bridge entrance would his eyes have beheld the thing that walked softly like a woman yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Odd as well i don't know what that means yeah. but it's, it's odd and, and it was probably just a cat or something uh, <laughs> but yes no i just thought he was saying the thing yeah. was a woman right 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 yeah <laughs> The root of all evil. The first thing. Yeah. Right? It's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, let's hear, I want to read some of the some of the pieces about the thing. Yeah. Um, the first one that comes up is, in all caps, what monster have the people Cree, and I'm not sure if that, um, if, he, if he's saying, he said he scanned some tall letters directly before him. And the fact that it's an unfinished sentence makes me think it's meant to be kind of scrawl as opposed to the more typewritten letters of later. Like someone has sort of graffitied this and then maybe I, disappeared he, all of a sudden. Doesn't he say that that is on a bulletin board? Mm-hmm. I felt like that it was that it was supposed to be a newspaper like headline that make oh, maybe like some, some, something no I thought it was like something written to advertise the newspapers that you would get it let me uh, I'm looking uh, he paused to read the bulletins so I feel like that the bulletins are like this is 1907 and I'm not sure how things were set up but I feel like like where you get the newspaper or whatever, they had like headlines written up on a board or something, mm-hmm. or like kind of oh, like when you go to Times Square, there's this stock, uh, there's this news ticker going across with like basic news information, and I feel like that this was a half-written one of those in a in an gotcha. anal- analog, and that somebody had had not finished writing it because of terror or whatever, <laughs> or they disappeared at that moment. <laughs> Anyway, he says, yeah, he says, I was looking at the, I stopped to read the bulletins and eagerly he scanned the tall letters. Anyway, that's what I was thinking. I thought that was more of the authors trying to keep uh, some, like, suspense for the reader and that that sentence was complete, but they were going, he's rubbing his eyes going, oh my God, I can't see this. Um, And then it's just making us wait a second longer. Well, he doesn't. Not wait a second longer because he doesn't ever finish. Well, he goes and reads more bulletins. We at least uh, get a little bit more. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's also it says it it says create and then he's rubbing his eyes. Mm-hmm. So maybe he just it's like oh no can't finish mm-hmm. reading. Maybe. Yeah. That you're rubbing your eyes comment. I actually wrote this down. It it made me think of. When I was reading this story, I had this epiphany that made me feel um, a lot better about an episode of The Twilight Zone that had ever bo- had always bothered me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know the one where, you know, all the guy wants to do is read yeah. and then everybody – spoilers! Um, and then everybody, uh, you know, is – is are they killed or do they disappear? I, I don't – I haven't watched it for a long time. I can't remember what the point of – if there was a nuclear uh, – wasn't he stopping time and he stopped is that the one where he stops time before the nuclear bomb drops and then he wants to read or no anyway I can't remember why he's all alone and and is gonna read yeah whatever my point is so then you know the whole twist of that Twilight Zone episode is that his glasses break and he's like no Um, but I have time to read and no sight Yeah. yeah exactly but what occurred to me is like if everybody's dead and he all he wants to do is read, then just like go from glasses store to glasses store until you find a pair that's your prescription. Or if there's dead people everywhere, just like try on people's glasses. I just feel like if he was determined enough, he'd be able to read again. Yeah, it's not. Um, that doesn't make sense. In his world, were people all dead, or was it like this story where people had disappeared? And were just well, like, that is a there. crucial distinction, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was that they had all like vanished. That seems incorrect <laughs> we don't we don't remember what happened no the three of us 
But yeah, I'm assuming pilot. that not all of the glasses in all of the world have disappeared in this Good. circumstance. Good point. So and I even, just wanted to share that. Could even, even if they had, maybe he could work on, you know, making, grinding some glass or something. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, I'm glad like, that put your mind out. at rest. It really did. I felt much better. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So <laughs> this story. So I want to read some more of the parts about the thing. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So on 217, uh, are we to believe that millions of hurrying, toiling, despondent, triumphant lives actuated by the all-encompassing, all-pervading spirit of selfishness have engendered some awful physical force or personality in the very mountains of steel and stone they have created? And does this thing feed upon that which created it? Um that's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost um, like he's, it, it sounds like he's saying, like, have the people who make up the city mm-hmm. created one terrible monster that is the city. Yes. <laughs> that is a living They're thing in. beyond people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Trump. Yeah. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an interesting right. metaphor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Trump. And then, uh, I mean, actually, yeah. this story made me think of Trump while I was right? reading it. Really? It was like, well, yeah, he's like, he's, it's like the thing, <laughs> yeah. the thing of evil. It lives. It's it's like killing everything. It's st- it's just like, and I was kind of all it's of like, the worst it's, thoughts we've ever had yeah, joined like, together into this one cotton candy. It's like it's greed form. as in, it's greed and evil it personified. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Created in the city yeah. in Manhattan. Obviously, easy, that's you know. Is Exactly. True, true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What <laughs> else do we have here? Um, let's see. Uh, there's there's more that are similar, you know, has has uh, have the passionate ex- endeavors for self-preservation, for gain, for lustful triumphs, exhaled for years, at last produced a concrete result, and has the final total solidified into a physical, tangible thing, the like of which never before existed. That was one um, of my favorites. I love the thought of, have we exhaled this and created a physical thing? Like, I just thought that was said really, uh-huh. really interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the part on the... Next page, um, where they're talking about the scientist, and uh, they said, Dr. Mullenach. Yeah, Professor Mullenach, it's it's a funny name, announces he has discovered that a new force exists in certain atmospheric belts where huge numbers of people are gathered within a a small radius, which under certain conditions is instantaneously fatal to all forms of life and even absorbing or eradicating the physical frame itself. And then they say the next one, uh, article from the next day, says Professor Mullenach was arrested while trying to force his way into the White House this afternoon. He will be examined as to his sanity. His errand was to inform the president of an astounding discovery, he said. Yeah. Um, I wish that Pendexter had done a sequel that was fought, like like Professor Mullenarch's uh, Day in Washington or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, had written a whole other story about what was going on there. Yeah. That would have been And great. do it like Return uh, to Oz, where mm. he's in the insane asylum the whole time, but he thinks yes. he's visiting with the president it's like double dream <laughs> oh I, that's funny um, you just reminded me uh, Hugh Pendexter's grandson Hugh Pendexter the third mm-hmm. who just um, died recently in 2012 mm-hmm. he wrote um, Oz books modern oh, okay. Oz books like oh. you know there uh, Frank Baum wrote mm-hmm. 15 or something and then people were licensed to do them and he was i don't know if he was the oz modern oz guy but he was the one who was writing like oz books in like the 70s 80s or 90s. interesting yeah hugh pendexter the third that that is funny that that came up in our conversation um yeah. um so let let's see uh oh and i just wanted to say you know what it really made me think of this whole uh thing where you know the scientist is realizing before it it sounds like you know before or at least just as this thing is killing everyone um 
that that it's happening and what it is and he's trying to warn people and that just made me think you know of like climate scientists for the last uh, 80 uh, years um, have been saying similar things about the city like oh uh oh all this stuff we're doing is killing everyone and now it's too yeah. late um, so you know it, that was just a sort of eerie yeah and it the what yeah and what partially causes the thing is vast numbers of people congregating mm-hmm. together and that's mm-hmm. sort of like talking about you know, human, well, not exactly environmental issue, but it's a, well, it's a hu- you know, well, it's population about, is an environmental issue. But also yeah. they're talking about what they exhale, but it could be, you know, that's, that's the energy a single person takes up, you know, whether that's for their heating or for their this or for their that, you know, that, that the more people, it means the more emissions from yeah. whatever sources. So mm-hmm. they're talking more about a, a internal emission, but it could also go the other way. Yeah, I also absolutely. liked in this section, it reminded me of Melanta Tauta in one that the the scientist, you know, she's looking back on the past and going, isn't it crazy that scientists who are theorizing new things were being, um, like, disrespected or whatever, and here's yes. a scientist that's doing that. And also, when he's talking about, you know, they say specifically in certain atmospheric belts, and that's, I don't think she uses those terms in Melanta Tauta, but she is talking about, you know, the different... Um, atmospheric belts that you can fly on and what it means, you know, that, that that's, it's the straight, uh, that, you know, if you go to this level, it's like this. And if you go to that level. Yeah. Anyway. And I realized that, yeah, that one sentence about what the scientist is saying, that makes this like science fiction. Mm, because, right. Um, they do try to like, just throw in one <laughs> thing about, uh, it doesn't make sense, of course, but, um, about, a. a the science basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes a lot well, more it doesn't sense make than sense the for all you know. managers. Like I yeah. love how they're like, and you know, mo- people going to a movie theater and disappearing is interesting enough. But then they're like, and then there was sixteen movie theater managers all gathered together that were never seen again. And it's like, yeah. for what special meeting were the oh. movie theater managers getting together? Oh, I read. Or that. was it maybe just theater? It wasn't movie theater. It was movie uh, theaters. Theater. There, theater. there were not many yes. movie theaters at that time. I think it was just theater. No, yeah. but I, I read that over and I realized what they meant was okay. that um, the, the the theater managers were meeting to discuss that people were had been disappearing from their theater <laughs> and they were <laughs> meeting they were meeting to have a discussion about that mm-hmm. and and then they disappeared. And they disappeared. Great. Um, I I was gonna add there's this um, religious like aspect to the story and it almost it sometimes seems like the thing is related to like god like one thing that makes me think that is like the the thing is taking people like as if like rapturing them Mm -hmm. yes and then at the end, the city is like dark, and then the thing turns on all the lights. Yeah. And then is like a god, like, then Let there will be light, light mm-hmm. aspect. And then there's this part where he says, the report of a wraith like vaporous shape that ex- extirpates all forms of life, it passes over. And that's like, sounds like, uh, what, in Moses? Mm-hmm. Um, With Passover. Yeah. Passover and the, and the, the 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 death the spirit mm-hmm. of death taking all of the the firstborn, mm-hmm. and then at the end it gets like incredibly religious and it kind of sounds like when he approaches the actual home of the thing, um, it has a lot of like Moses type feeling. He says, um, "Well, he says God." He shrieks, falling prostrate. Yes, um, the home of the thing it's growing. For the ball of fire seemed to ascend higher as he stared, and that's like when when Moses meets God. Uh, isn't God like created? Isn't he like is that the burning bush? Fire? Well, there's yeah. the burning bush, which is Moses too. But then I feel like he goes up on the mountain to get mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And yep. Anyway, if, if God isn't ringed in fire, he's ringed in like whatever glowing halo sure, and stuff. Sure. Um, and then he says, "Give me back my people." 
which is a Moses kind of phrase too, mm-hmm. let my people go. Yeah, exactly. He cried, stretching out his hands um, to the evil pile. I don't know why evil pile, but... Yeah, because it sounded also more like a straight-up building. It was just a building that was growing. Yeah, so well, the thing, is in, the, the thing is in the tallest building, mm-hmm. a building that he didn't even... Uh, hadn't had yeah. seen before. Yeah, um, and it's getting taller and taller. I thought that was in terms of fear of oh, the, buildings. I mean, yeah. it's a literal it's scary monster building that keeps getting taller, right. <laughs> and that I've never seen. It sprung out of nowhere, and now it's bigger than everything. It, it seemed to ascend higher and higher as he stared, as if the building were elongating and pushing it up. Mm-hmm. And then it says, like, uh, he's saying, "Give me back all the people. Give me back the good and the bad. Give me back the selfish, the evil." Um, uh, where are they all? As if in answer, there came a mighty clanking and huge double doors of the structure began to open, which is Revelations, kind of the seal breaking and the door opening. There's a there's several doors opening in Revelation. So I had this feeling that it was like, I don't know. He had this, it, 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 the, the, the thing seemed like a God or God. Yeah. A, a tiny thing that I just wanted to note that I thought was interesting um, was <clears throat> uh, earlier, before he finds any of the stuff about the thing, uh, he was dimly conscious of being uncomfortable from the heat, and without bothering to remove his pocketbook, he threw away his mm-hmm. coat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just and thought later that was... hat. And yes, but I, I thought the, the note about the pocketbook Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's his wallet was interesting because, you know, basically nothing you keep in your wallet is of any use mm-hmm. if you are not in a, a structured society. And it's like yeah. he, mm-hmm. he finds himself out with civilization having collapsed. And it's like, well, if, you know, I don't need this. This is dead weight. Um, and, he then, and then he starts just taking food mm-hmm. and stuff. And what's funny is the um, there is... At least one other story. There's several man alone stories that, like, we'll, we'll be doing. And one other story, there's a guy and he's in the city and it's all alone. And he's assiduously, as, I don't know if that's the right word. He's very, um, uh, considerately paying for everything oh. that he, uh, when he, he goes, everything's abandoned, but he's paying for food and he's leaving the, the money. Even mm-hmm. long after he's realized that, like, there's nobody's coming back or anything. But, and it's done for humor. That one that I'm thinking of is done for, like, humorous effect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, this guy, yeah, throws away his wallet and then just starts, he just, like, grabs bread and, um, a, a bottle of beer, I remember. So. Yeah. Well, and also I think throwing away the hat, I mean, you would think that the hat would be a protective thing, but if he's throwing that away immediately, it's just because society told him he had to wear a hat. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't have to wear this piece of shit anymore. I'm like, fine, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got rid of it pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that that makes me think of is the, there's a few references. That, so at first he sees the date on the newspaper and it's yesterday's date. And so he thinks it's only been a night. And then he starts to, uh, he thinks, oh, but those papers were so mildewed and that beer was so flat and that bread was so stale and those spider webs were so big. Has oh, it I really love only his reaction been a night? To the, to the spider webs on the flat iron building. Yeah. I think that's a really great moment in the story of like, yeah. oh, crap. How could this be? And then probably true. Like, I haven't seen spider webs in the city like before. Like, that would be kind of a, yeah. jarring. On the outside. Yeah, on the outside. Yeah. You know, this question of like how long would it take for a city to be completely abandoned and destroyed and not really be a city anymore seems to be this kind of question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that um, given that hmm, I think that he uh, if the bread is stale but not moldy, I don't know. Well, he's, it's a week that he's been asleep or something? Like, I mean, not it wasn't long. wasn't too hard to eat. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been too long. Mm-hmm. Papers being mildewed, I don't know. But, and um, spiders work quick when yeah. they're not being disturbed. But he wasn't like asleep. And when they're night. all a dream. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I also, know. if they took away all the horses, then why would there still be spiders? Like, it's kind of a, a art, oh. you know, <laughs> if there's no horses or dogs or cats, which he doesn't say specifically, but he doesn't seem to come across anything yeah. else. But there are and he spiders. mentioned specifically that he would love to see a dog, so he would mm-hmm. have said if there was one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, that it that doesn't make sense, but Hugh. he gets away with it yeah. for it, it being a dream. <laughs> and I also, actually, I want to bring back up The Wizard of Oz because the ending is so mm. much like The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. You're all yeah. here. You've come back. Yeah. You've come back. The good and the bad all come back. And he's, you yeah. know, he's looking uh-huh. at all these people around him. Yeah. Um, and The <laughs> Wizard of Oz, I think, was several years earlier than this story. Oh, really? So um, he's a total ripoff. <laughs> no, it's not that similar, you know. But also having a big green ball of fire, like oh. these big heavy doors, feel very emerald. Oh, yeah, the big green ball of fire. Mm-hmm. And I also thought it was interesting, just in the way that he like the way that the newspaper articles were talking about it. You know, it feels very mo- much more ephemeral or diaphanous, where it's just like this this entity that we've created, that we've expelled or exhaled. But then it's a very, very specific nuts and bolts. This is a building and a green fire that's growing. Yeah. It was just those two, joining those two things um, and how they almost like relate to each other to be like, okay, so it's this, this cloud of energy that passes over people and let's say raptures them. But it's also a huge growing building that feels to me much more like aliens or something. And it felt much more like a foreign entity. Or to than, uh, than a god one. What'd you say, Grayson? Oh, I, I said, or a Tower of Babel. Yeah. Or a Tower of Babel. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Well, one, I something I was going to say about... The like, when Wizard of Oz was. Oh, the Wizard, Wizard of Oz was 1900, so it was seven years oh, okay. before this. Um, but um, about the, the big building that he sees, he's at that point, he's gone downtown he, he was on 23rd street and he goes down to where city hall is and city hall is next to something called newspaper row and that's mm-hmm. he's going there to look at like the newspapers and um on newspaper row was when the story was current the tallest building in the city which was also the tallest like occupied building in the world um i i think in other words it didn't there was something maybe that was taller with a a unoccupied steeple or you know something like Mm -hmm. the the uh eiffel tower it was like habit but this one yeah as in terms of people living going up to the top floor and working there this and it was called the park row building and so what it was also very new. It was it was built in 1899. So when he says, um, then I saw like a building that I'd never seen before, it's like he could just kind of be describing the the feeling of that he'd come back to the city and they'd build uh, that. Mm-hmm. And other buildings that he mentions in the story are like also like brand new. Um, yeah, I thought the Flatiron building was built more in the 20s or 30s just because of the way it looked. No. It seemed... The Flatiron Building is 1902, so it's hmm, it was built brand new. finished five years before the story. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, he's sort of uh, describing the experience of like at the end when he's looking at that thing of, you know, a yeah. quickly built gargantuan building and looking up at it and um, something that you know he'd never seen. Well, and that is interesting that the, so, you know, the other two buildings that he's mentioning by name, um, or area, those are both two of the newest buildings in the city. Yeah. But he also mentions the, um, the Metropolitan Tower, mm-hmm. um, which is the Metropolitan Life Insurance Building, which is close to the Flatiron. And that, uh, that one, that was under construction for a while, a while, and so that was that was not yet. That was to become the tallest building. But he mentions like seeing it 
And then he mentions the St. James Hotel, which is not a super tall building, but um, was just a really nice looking building around uh, around the Flatiron. But by the time that he's seeing the kind of otherworldly um, building, he's in Brooklyn at that point, isn't he? No, he doesn't. I thought he crossed over into Brooklyn. He, he said he thought about it. He said uh, he wants to go to Brooklyn. I said he ran over a bridge. Like, wasn't that when he ran away from the footsteps and then he found the, what's it called, the blacksmith shop? I thought that was once he had crossed over, when the lights came on and stuff. I thought that the, was... Mm, he doesn't cross a bridge. He's talking about heading to Brooklyn. Oh, he says, had he waited at the bridge entrance, oh. would his mm. eyes have beheld the thing that walked softly like a woman? So I think that means he was at the bridge entrance and he ran away. Yeah, if you're, if you're downtown... Um, at Newspaper Row mm-hmm. and at City Hall, where he is, that's the the Brooklyn Bridge entrance is right there. Gotcha. You're right, right there, and so he's talking. He's at the foot of the bridge. Okay. Oh yeah. So here's the here's that part. Night was slipping upon him, and regardless of the clattering echoes, he rushed with distracted speed for the bridge entrance. As he tumbled down some steps, the gloom increased and became thick, and he sank against the cool rock in despair, even while he was hesitating and dumbly essaying to summon up the courage of despair. The tumultuous throbbing of his heart stopped at the soft pit-pat of approaching footsteps. The steps were coming to him from out of the darkness, and with lolling tongue that sought to sound one wild shriek, he turned turned and staggered up the steps and into a new world. Um, it's not super clear. Another. <laughs> what? I guess maybe that's where I got the idea that he had gone across a bridge or into another place. Yeah. Well, and it's that right after that that the city was illuminated. Mm-hmm. And then he ran for nearly a mile through the lighted street before exhaustion brought him to a halt. He oh, looked I back. That, that reminds me of um, the Vanilla Sky opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Tom Cruise is, first he's like calmly driving around Central Park mm-hmm. and he's noticing there's nobody there. And then he goes down, uh, so Central Park is in like the high 50s. And then and then he goes down to 42nd Street. Like he's in, He stops in Times Square and he gets out and he's looking around, he's all freaked out. Mm-hmm. And then he starts running. Like, yeah. like crazy. He's got to run, and he's just running and like ah, yeah. Anyway, uh, but there's a lack of like ominous thing. There's no thing in that thing, that part. But it, it does have no. A- it's just Tom Cruise wakes up in a dream, and yeah. oh, and, it's and a dream he, thing, yeah. he he it is a dream. Yeah, no, he's he's in his dream and he's w- wandering around the city and no one's there and he panics and he runs and then he wakes up. Yeah. Uh, and then the movie actually starts. There's an illustration for this story um, that that was you know just just one at the beginning of the story in the magazine, and it's like the, this guy and he's like looking up at the buildings and um, the streets empty and stuff, and it there, it does have this look of like the vanilla sky kind of scene mm. a lot, and uh, it's funny they're like separated by a hundred years, yeah, but they're right. both like kind of in New York and, you know, doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except Tom Cruise probably has a better car. Or a car. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This, you can't rapture a motor vehicle like you can a horse. Yeah. Yeah, the horses got raptured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's that it's that idea, like, I don't know. When I'm in New York, I'm always overwhelmed by... Uh, how extremely human everything feels. I mean, first of all, you're surrounded by people at all times on all sides, and then you're also surrounded only by things that were made or curated by people. You know, even the park feels incredibly curated. Oh, yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, like here in Austin, it's like people's yards, you know, are overgrown like little tiny forests, and, and you have all this space that feels like, okay... And uh, I don't know if what's what is New York without people. It would just be this weird monument to New York. Hmm. Um. I mean, the Emperor's would, Pleasure Garden. Yeah, Emperor's <laughs> right. Pleasure Garden. The animals would, you know, come in eventually. Mm. Um. There was this. There's this TV series that's like Discovery, and it's about 
um, the world without people. And it, and it, and I think that it like the, if I remember right, I watched a little bit of it. It's like one episode covers like what the world would be like after a year if everybody, all people just disappeared and how nature and the animals would take over, like, especially like urban centers and, and roads and how fast they would do. And then like another episode is about like a hundred years and what it would look like and what would have fallen apart and everything. It's, it's a cool series. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, but so going back to the, um, the big building that's kind of erupting from the ground and keeps growing and has this green fire. Did you guys get any, like for me that felt very like, alien species or something for some that this thing is just like all of a sudden here it's bright green like that felt kind of and then the doors are opening Uh uh-huh no i didn't get that but i see what you mean Mm. that was the only other part aside from professor millenark that made me feel Mm sci-fi um no it definitely seemed like biblical yeah no i i I think all of your points were way valid i just didn't know yeah, I know. I didn't get aliens. Mm-hmm. I just kept thinking about the Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> so, aliens, Leviathan, God, Devil. Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah. I mean, he's really pulling from everything at his fingertips at mm-hmm. the turn of the century. Um, but he also, uh, he mentioned, the character mentions that he, in just one sentence near the beginning, that he's a rural person mm-hmm. oh yeah he says That's he right. says his rural training makes him notice that the traces were cut like mm-hmm. the 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 horse you know reins the thing that attaches the horse and why would a rapture need to cut the traces that feels more human what what happened there we don't know no we don't um or it could just be that since people were also theoretically fleeing mm-hmm. the city they just took their all their horses right. with them, and, right, or right. actually, wouldn't the best way to flee the city be get on the horse exactly right just away? Ride. <laughs> um, but so I feel like that he's like talking about it as a mainer mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. You know, he's talking about New York City, and then that kind of connects in with the judgmental at- at- attitude mm-hmm. that is going on here. That um, that the city has doomed itself through evil things. But then he's like, he's depicting a, you know, a ruinous judgment of the evil city. But then I think there's, it's also interesting that he's saying, um, oh, I wish it hadn't happened. Give me back the evil mm-hmm. people. Give mm-hmm. me back the good and the bad. I'm sorry. It's like, so I see sort of like the writer being like, hating the city, mm-hmm. hating the tall buildings that he sees have grown up as he's been away for a few mm-hmm. years, these things, and that he has this fantasy of it. Um, well, it's funny. He doesn't have a fantasy of the buildings being destroyed. He has a mm-hmm. fantasy of, of, of the city being destroyed by everybody going away. But then he feels he's like sorry about his judgment is what I, I see a little bit. Well, and I think that any... Um Anyone that lives in the city, especially if they're coming from a more rural place, whether that's today or in the past, you can get kind of moony-eyed and go, oh, man, it'd be so good to be, like, without all these people around where I could just, like, have some time to myself and have some greenery or whatever. And then you maybe go and visit home or go on a vacation and you could get real bored. Or a lot of people that were raised in cities are kind of freaked out when they're in the middle of nowhere. And so I've freaked out by the woods. Visit Maine and it's just like, oh, my God, like, somebody could kill us right now and nobody would ever know nobody would ever find out it's so desolate so it's also maybe that the two sides of being like oh i'd love to run back away to norway maine and go hang out there and then he's in norway and he's kind of like i'm bored i'm bored i want my people i want the good people and the bad people and all the people that litter the streets um instead of the 15 members of my own family who are the only other population here (laughs) yeah zach i'm curious if um the mo the this idea of um of the the greed and the everything wrong with the city being embodied in a kind of beast or f- its own life force is that something that comes up in a lot more of these stories or is that kind of uh more of its own unusual own thing? Um, that's unusual um thing. There's 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 judgment. 
um, of the city, but this this thing it, it, that he's describing is very odd, and uh, I haven't seen anything like it. Yeah. Wow. Other, yeah. Story. I love it. I think it's yeah. remarkable. It is. It is. It's a good story. I like it. Yeah. With a hacky ending, but that's okay. I was okay. going to say, if only he had ruined it, but... <laughs> um, he got, he got uh, stuck. I'll, I'll allow yeah. What do you do? <laughs> um, he should have just ended it, and the structure slowly began to open. <laughs> Boom. It's over. Done. Cliffhanger. Yeah, ending. Is, Inception. Isn't that kind of lame, <laughs> too? Just the it's structure like- began to, <laughs> to open. He looked. He couldn't believe what he saw. The end. <laughs> Isn't that kind of like, I don't know. Have you read any of his westerns? <laughs> I read, uh, not recently. I read this and that, mm-hmm. and I did not finish a whole novel of his. I don't know. I didn't know if there was any similar themes around. Probably not. Word, like judgments or anything. Um, of- I can't speak to that. Sure. Um, I do know that they would be mostly taking place in... The wilderness and the old west, and so therefore they're sort of probably pro rural individuals, men out there doing their thing, stories, dropping their wallets, never to be seen uh-huh. again. <laughs> um, I get. I wanted to say one other uh, something about the, these um, empty city stories. Uh, one thing I would say is that the very first episode of Twilight Zone, which now all the Twilight Zone episodes are on Netflix. Um, so probably since it just sort of puts up in the list episode one, uh, people are going to watch a lot, the episode one a lot. But that one is, is one of these kind of things. It's from, uh, 59, I think, and, it's called Where Is Everybody? And this guy is, without any explanation, there's this guy and he's walking down the road and then he comes to like an empty cafe and but there's like a jukebox playing and there's coffee brewing and everything's just been like abandoned and he's just like, hey, there's a customer here and he's walking around and he's like talking as if the people could hear him and he pours himself coffee and he's like sort of angry and then... And then he goes into town and everything is like kind of in a similar way has just been abandoned, which is different than this story where it seems like things are like a week old or mm-hmm. something. But, um, and then he's just going around the town and then like a phone rings in the phone booth and he runs to get it and like nobody's there. And that's, that's the whole thing. He wakes at the, at the end. It's basically a dream. He's in a, he's in a Damn military, it. he's in a military yeah. experiment and he's, um, he's been in an isolation chamber and he's like losing his mind. And uh, that's what's happening. Uh, they're testing because they're testing him out in an isolation chamber as an experiment for sending people to Mars and like way out into space. But um, it's a it's a good one. And, and it's it's pretty similar. So it sounds like with a lot of these stories that they're really trying to figure out what's worse being alone or being with everybody in the city. Like and just kind of can't good point. Can't decide on. Uh-huh. The lesser of two evils, or which feels more uncomfortable to be crowded in with everybody, or to be on your own. Well, the Twilight Zone one is is unambiguous. Is sure. that is that he's he wants to be with somebody. He's been in an isolation thing for mm-hmm. ever, and being with people is much better. Yes, I'm, but yeah. there's the fact that people have been removed, or that's something that's there already. Kind of passes judgment that uh-huh. that it was maybe a bad to start. Maybe. Especially in this story, you know, like where you're saying there is judgment and then he kind of feels bad for it mm-hmm. at the end. Um, well, that makes me think of it's a very small part, um, but he mentions uh, that he's having a fear of being watched, but he doesn't mm-hmm. know by what. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is really interesting. For some, it made me think of that. You know that episode of Black Mirror where everybody's got their phones out, and it, you know, it turns out that she's um, spoilers uh, that <laughs> I feel like we should say. Uh, no, um, we should. All we do is spoil things. Um, <laughs> that's why. Uh, and it, you know, it turns trigger. out that she's <laughs> trigger warning. It turns out that she's been. Um, 
you know, that this is a punishment for a crime that she doesn't remember committing, mm-hmm. uh, which involved her filming this brutal murder. Um, but, it, you know, this idea of like, if I'm all alone, then that is so unusual that someone must have done this to me. And if someone has done this to me, then they're probably trying to observe the results. Someone's out there watching mm-hmm. and perpetrating. Well, and also he's, all he wants to do is find people, but the second he senses people, whether it's, you know, the soft steps of a woman or all the lights going on, that's the stuff that really freaks him out. Yeah. That he's running, even though he's like running towards trying to find humans the whole time, that's what makes him run away. He senses that the steps are, are wrong, Mm -hmm. that they're Mm -hmm. a, um, that they're the the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's kind of like why I feel like, you know, my friends who've grown up in the city, they go camping and then they Mm -hmm. feel afraid that it's going to be like deliverance because every time they hear, you know, something crack in the woods or whatever, instead of thinking, Mm -hmm. oh, it's a squirrel, they're thinking like, there's no people here. What could that be? It must be a person. They're coming to kill me. Um, (laughs) Whereas maybe somebody going from the woods into the city, they hear people walking behind them and they're like, oh, crap, there's people here. Yeah. yeah, people are dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, any final thoughts? Um. Well, something else I was going to mention was mm. uh, just that this is not a. Um, just to be clear, it's like not like the first one of these types of stories. And I mean, it, it, it might have some original things to it, but there were a bunch. I, I like this one and I, you know, I picked this one because it's, it's in New York City, particularly. And, um, and it has these cool, like, mentions of architectural things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's, there were, there's lots of people alone in these abandoned cities. There's an Arabian Nights tale from what uh the year 1000 or 1100 where uh it's actually have the title here um it's called the tale of the city of many colored irim and this uh traveler comes to this city and it has vast gates um never in the world has there been seen um their size and height inlaid with all manner of jewels and it describes the jewels and he finds out that the city was um abandoned and ruined eventually because of the hubris and like the pride of the ruler and that's like a thousand years before this and it has to do with greed hubris and the height of buildings yeah that's nuts yeah (laughs) it's fascinating um, um yeah but and i it, I've read this story. It's a while ago, and it—I mean, one major difference is he's not going walking through the city and freaking out and be like, ah, and, he, and there's not a malicious, malevolent thing. I think he sure. ends up going and reading some inscriptions that talk about. It's mostly just sort of a mysterious story, um, but this, yeah, I just wanted really to mention that this is not like the first story where this happened. And you said that a bunch of stories like these were also written about London when it was the biggest city and like the, in the hundred, the century before yeah. they were coming out about New York. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Um, there's a thing called the, I mentioned before, the New Zealander and it's a, um, is a term that comes up that was used in like a lot of like rhetoric and or like poetry or things and it is it traces back to one particular writer and one particular kind of paragraph in this book but it's about this person in the future and it go it's from the 1700s it's a concept a person in the future from New Zealand who is in New Zealand is a center of civilization he comes to London and it's in ruins like Rome and abandoned and empty and he's gazing on it and thinking about you know, how uh, how great things fall hmm. I've never heard that term it's a it's just a term that came up a lot in writing a lot in the 1800s mm-hmm. <laughs> ah he's such a New Zealander or how or they would be like you? they would be like um, uh, you know 
even like I was visiting Paris and I, I and I looked at like the Louvre, but I imagined like the New Zealander mm-hmm. observing it in like you know decay and plants growing up around it. Da, 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 huh. You would throw it in. Like right, that. right, right. There's a pin I see sometimes here in Austin that it it's just a picture of Texas and then it says this too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. They're just saying, you know, Texas and its borders and what it stands for are uh, are temporary, and yeah. we can all look forward to them disappearing forever. I I think. I mean, that's what I take from the button that I am <laughs> describing. Um, I'd like one of those buttons. That sounds cool. Well, if I see one, I'll get it for you. Yeah. I heard recently that there's more miles of. Uh, pipeline in Texas than there are miles of road, and there are a lot of miles of road here. Mm. Seriously. <laughs> anyway. Cool, so... Uh, in Maine, we have more miles of coastline, if you unfurl it all, than, like, what, the rest of the eastern seaboard? Than the large intestines. Yes, definitely <laughs> more than the large intestines. And that's hard to do. My large intestines would stretch to the moon. Yeah, if you unwrap your large intestines, it goes to to the moon and back. Yes. <laughs> I want to figure out a way of spinning that into like you know when people are like, "I love you to the moon and back." It's like, "I love you the length of my intestines." Mm, I think you oh. found it. You did it. Yeah, I'm gonna work on it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> okay. It, it needs a little tweak. All right. <laughs> your large intestine needs a little tweak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So seriously, though, any any final thoughts, y'all? Um, the story seems a little bit like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story to me. I'm not a huge Lovecraft fan, and I don't know everything at all. But he was writing in. He started writing in the late teens, and was mostly a twenties author. And he died in the thirties, like sort of young. But he was from Rhode Island, and then he moved to Brooklyn, and he wrote... He never based his stories really in Manhattan and stuff, and he didn't write this kind of thing. Uh, There was this one that I thought was a little relevant called uh, Horror in Red Hook, and Red Hook is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I guess he moved there... His wife moved to Cleveland for a job, and he moved out of their house and moved to Red Hook, and I guess he really hated it. And the horror in Red Hook is not just about hating Red Hook, but it's um, it's about like the these demon worshippers are in Red Hook, and um, <laughs> and he well, not he the, there's a detective in the story, and, and they're based on those loud kids in his neighborhood who keep him up all night. Well, not exactly, but 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 um, but. <laughs> The detective in the story is talking about how he hates all these damn immigrants and these stupid Syrians and, you know, these Italians and there's everybody smelly. And um, I was looking up, uh, I was reading the story online and I also came across a discussion of it that said H.P. Lovecraft's most bigoted story. But um, (laughs) but, uh, in the story, this this building in Red Hook collapses and it is like the center of this cult demon worship thing. And the guy is back in Rhode Island and he's like walking around and he sees a building that looks like it and he freaks out and has like a mental breakdown. And um, so, but that building in the story, not it just to be clear, the buildings in Red Hook are not tall and they've never been tall and they're not skyscrapers. It, it was, but it was, the story does center around, um, this guy freaking out over a particular building, but it was a building of like um, uh, evil and demon worshiping thing. And so there's like connections because like there's this demon inhabiting this building in in New York in in this story too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. and then Lovecraft also wrote several. Uh, he writes a lot of things that take place in imaginary places, not like New York City. Mm-hmm. And he and he wrote um, several stories about people. And coming into encountering um, abandoned cities, and uh, there's one there's one called "At the Mountains of Madness," and 
Well, anyway, there's several uh, where there's a lone traveler coming and encountering a mysterious abandoned city. And then there's like, like with Lovecraft things, there's always like, then like a crazy evil force, blah, 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 blah. Cool. Oh, I had one more thought. Um, Do you happen to know of any, like, was Hugh Pendexter's grandson only writing Wizard of Oz, or did he have any other things he was known for? Um, give me one second. I'm looking at books for sale by Hugh Pendexter the <laughs> Third. No, he wrote other things. He wrote because this there's a book called A Virginia Scout, so that can't be Wizard of Oz, and one called Gentlemen of the North. Mm. Um. Kings of the Missouri. It sounds like he was writing kind of maybe westerns as well. Aww. Uh, free transport. Ooh, the fumbling kingmaker. The fumbling kingmaker. That's a good this this That's looks a good like title. this looks like fantasy, mm-hmm. possibly. The fumbling rescuer. Oh, it's this. It's the fumbling series. <laughs> cool. Ah, good old fumblers. Uh. Lots of kings of Missouri. Anyway. That's all. I was just but I'll, I'll read some of the titles of Oz books he's written. Please. Uh, let's see. Oz and the Three Witches from 1977. Because women are evil. That's right. Pass that right down the family line. Don't you forget our listeners. Um, he wrote The Crocheted Cat in Oz. Ooh. Um, crocheted Cat? Yeah, you'd like crocheted cats. I would like. I and you'd do like, like, like to know what they do. Yeah, but I didn't know that was a thing. Yes. Great. And sorry. Wiley makes crocheted animals. <laughs> to share that as gifts. Yeah, so it's especially not just for fun. Relative to her, she has mostly made dogs, but she does have potential plans uh, for a cat in the works. It's true. And he wrote Wooglet in Oz and Fork in Oz with Chris. Dula Bone and Atticus Ganaway. That was a hard one to write. He had to get some help. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it says, and then this is Oz Wiki. Um, so they discuss his writing style. He sometimes pursues a strategy that other modern Oz authors offer, also favor of filling in gaps and resolving inconsistencies in the work of L. Frank Baum. Okay, that's cool. Okay. All right, we gotta go go. to this thing. Bye. (laughs) He may produce results he didn't ask for. Thanks for listening to Fear of Buildings. I'm your host and sound designer, Ketchup Freeland. The Man Who Was Alone was narrated by our producer, Wiley Vreeland. Fear of Buildings is based on the annotated anthology by our creator and researcher, Zach Vreeland, and our logo design is by Stu Vreeland. Our theme music is the song For Science by Naroche. Check them out on SoundCloud. And join us next time for Footnotes on The Man Who Was Alone by Hugh Pendexter.